You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. If only I had Jim Jones's tapes where he's describing himself as an alien from another planet who has come here. Two years ago, I met with Colonel Desmond Roberts, uh, formerly of the Guyanese Defense Force, the Army, who had never described before what happened when he led the first troops into Jonestown early in the morning on November 19, 1978. They had marched through the jungle overnight. There were about a hundred soldiers, most of them very young and untrained and afraid. People's Temple's farm eventually was just two miles away. The soldiers advanced slowly, certain a fight was imminent. They believed this was an armed revolution, possibly as many as a hundred men led by Jim Jones with guns. They might be waiting for them anywhere, but no attack came. As the sun rose, the air grew stifling. Each breath seared the nostrils and lungs. The jungle was soggy from the previous day's violent storm. As the soldiers finally neared Jonestown, clouds of steam wafted up from the ground, making it difficult to see. Around them, they heard jungle sounds, birds squawking, monkeys howling, the rustle of unseen animal in the nearby brush. But as they reached the settlement perimeter, the area in front of them was eerily quiet. That suggested ambush with a well-armed squadron of Jonestown militia lurking silently in wait until the interlopers came within range. The thick ground fog made it impossible to see more than a few feet ahead. Some of the soldiers couldn't even see their feet. Their boots were obscured by the steamy morning mist. In whispers, officers ordered the men to spread out and surround the central area of the settlement. From previous visits by Guyanese military and government officials, it was known that a sizable pavilion dominated there. It was as good a point as any on which to converge. The ring of soldiers tightened, all of them waiting for the inevitable shots indicating that the Jonestown gunmen were in place and finally firing but there was no noise at all. The tension heightened, and then the soldiers found themselves stumbling over something, maybe logs placed on the ground by Jonestown rebels to impede them. When the soldiers looked down and waved away what they could of the ground fog, some of them screamed and a few ran howling into the jungle. Their officers came forward, peered down, and what they saw made them want to scream too. But they maintained a shaky composure and did what they could to regroup their men. The pavilion loomed and they wanted to go there, but the way was blocked by what lay on the ground in every direction. As the fog lifted and they could see better, they got on the radio and they reported back to the capital city of Georgetown that something terrible had happened in Jonestown, something even worse than armed insurrection and the attack on a few people at the nearby Port Kaituma airstrip. They struggled to find the right words. What they had found in Jonestown that morning was almost beyond imagination, let alone description. 
bodies everywhere, seemingly too many to count, innumerable heaps of the dead. Jeff Gwynn is the author of 19 books, including The Best-Selling Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson, The Last Gunfight, The Real Story of the Shootout at the OK Corral, and How It Changed the American West, an Edgar Award finalist for Go Down Together, The True Untold Story of Bonnie and Clyde. He's a member of the Texas Literary Hall of Fame. His new book is The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and People's Temple. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. It's a real pleasure. Jeff, this book is such an interesting look at Jim Jones. All of us tend to think of those last moments as you read in your introduction. But Jim Jones had a long and complicated life. So he was not a man who wanted to inspire his followers to go out and kill one another from the very beginning he was he really was a preacher he wanted them to inspire them to go out and do good jones was clearly a demagogue but unlike most demagogues he attracted his followers by appealing to their better natures he started his ministry in an america in indiana at a time when racial prejudice segregation was rampant And he had the courage as a white minister to actually take on the power structure in Indiana on behalf of people of color. And amazingly, he won. The schools were integrated, the hospitals. Jim Jones was a towering figure in the early civil rights movement. This makes it more difficult for people to understand how things turned out. We want our villains to be 100% evil. Jones brought in his followers by saying, come with me, let's put aside any racial prejudice. Everyone must be treated with equal dignity, regardless of color, gender, possessions, or lack of them. People's Temple was originally intended to set an example of socialist behavior, where everyone cooperated together that the world would want to emulate. Nobody was going to try violent takeover of a government. Nobody was going around claiming, if you don't believe exactly what we do, you're going to hell. All they wanted to do was live in a way that would encourage everyone else to show respect and equality towards others. He was, in many ways, more of a a communist or a socialist than he was a, a minister. Jones mingled religion and socialism, and there would be times later in his life when he would claim that he'd never believed in the Bible or God at all. But that, of course, is looking back and remembering conveniently, as we all do. I have found back in Lynn, Indiana, the little farm town where he grew up, the kids who grew up with him, now old men and women, who remember that Jim Jones, seven, eight, nine years old, belongs to all five churches in Lynn, the Nazarenes, the Methodists, the Baptists, and that on a Sunday, any given Sunday, he'd run from one church to the other, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, always absorbing the parts of the services that seem to work best until finally, as an adult, he will begin to bring these things together in a form not only of worship, but of entertainment and of social construction. In Indianapolis, with the first People's Temple, 
his congregation, one of the few mixed-race congregations anywhere in America. He wouldn't come out and proclaim the scripture or lead them in a hymn. He would say, what's bothering you? And someone would complain of trying to deal with the power company or the bank. He'd say, let's write a letter. All of them would write a letter saying, this person is not being treated fairly. Can we do something that I'll sign it? Jim Jones would take the letter in and he would get the situation resolved and come back and say, see, this is a church where you get something now. We're changing something every week. And so from the first, his followers felt that they were not simply standing in place listening to platitudes, but that because of their leader and their enthusiasm for what he's preaching, in little ways first, in bigger ways, we will change the world for the better. They're doing this for themselves, but in a larger sense, they're trying to do it for everyone. Behind every great and or terrifying man, there is a great woman, and in this case, it's Jim Jones' mother. She was, as I think she might have been described in the time, a real pistol. <laughs> if Jim Jones had any one most dominant influence in his life, it was his mother, Lynetta. In Indiana, out in the country at that time, there were certain ways women acted, and there were certainly ways a lady never would. Lynetta truly believed that she was the reincarnation of many great people throughout history and finding herself in a life where she was expected to be not only a subservient wife to an ill World War I veteran, but to have to go out and work for a living when she felt that, based on her previous lives, she was more suited to stay home and write great things or be a great philosopher. And so Lynetta smoked in public and inhaled. She wore pants and not dresses. Oh, my God. And now this is the worst thing. She cussed and she did not go to church on Sundays. So Jim Jones is growing up with a mother who defies easy classification. But more than this, she tells this boy, from the time he can understand the words, she had a vision before his birth. She was about to die. She'd been sick. She's approaching the river of death. She's going to cross. The spirit of her late mother appears to her and says, you cannot die. You are going to give birth to a child who will become the greatest man in the world. So Jim Jones, from his childhood, is having it drummed into his head over and over. You are reincarnated from great men. You are destined to be the most special man ever. Certainly, this contributes to a child's ego, but it also makes it possible for a young man who has the great belief in equality for all to feel that if he steps forward, if he says the things others are afraid to say, that he will accomplish the great things his mother has promised. And in some ways, Lynetta was not wrong. He did accomplish some great things, but she also imbued in him the belief that anyone who disagreed was the enemy. 
And this is the seed that ultimately destroys all demagogues. It came to Jim Jones early, and it was what ultimately finished him. Jones was a, a fascinating child. He was a, a kid who was really interested in speech and it, and went to great lengths to impersonate the speaking rhythms of the most powerful speakers of the time, eerily and frighteningly, Adolf Hitler. During World War II, Jimmy Jones, 10 years old, 12, 13, 14, is not like the other kids, wanting to pretend to be an allied soldier or maybe General Patton or General MacArthur. He admires Adolf Hitler not for Hitler's politics, but the way he can mesmerize an audience. He loves the film strips of, of Hitler leading the gang of Nazis, marching in goose step, and he tried to make all his Jones cousins in town do the same. When Hitler commits suicide, little Jimmy is fascinated. What a way to defy your enemies. They don't get this final triumph over you. There are things, even in his childhood, which are going to come back in another way, be reflected in his lifetime, and they will be in terribly destructive ways and acts. You do a masterful job of layering these themes in through the book so that as we read it, even though every word is a fact, we experience it almost like a novel. And there are these literary themes that come through his interest in controlling people through speech, through spoken words. He wasn't that great a writer. No. But, and also his interest in reincarnation and, and some of the, the, the more weird um, religious aspects as well. Jones was a sponge. <laughs> he would listen to everyone and then he would pick and choose, cherry picking, I guess we'd mm -hmm. call it, the things that would be most effective for the audiences he's trying to reach. And one of the mistakes we make when we think about Jim Jones and People's Temple is that everyone in People's Temple followed him for the same reasons, and that's just not true. There was a segment that believed Jim Jones might even be God. They were won over by his apparent ability at faith healing to read minds and draw cancers out of people's bodies. If you've ever wondered how this is done and you read the book, You'll find out. Jones was a master, but his tricks involved rotting chicken guts and, and other unsavory things. But he's got this group he's trying to hold. Then he's got yet another group who don't care much about the Bible or miracle healings at all. But the message of Jones towards social reconstruction with equal rights for everyone resonates with them. And he has programs in People's Temple from drug addiction programs, there's free food and clothing giveaways. People's Temple even takes children from the ghettos who have no chance of a higher education except what they learn in the streets. And they send them to college, paying full room, board, tuition, everything. So these people come and they see that Jim Jones is accomplishing the kind of social progress they believe in. And then finally, there's the other part. Jones always treated with great dignity what he would call the least among us, the scorned, the ones nobody else wants. He would tell everyone, if you are with us, if you join us, you will be respected. You will be someone we know is important. 
because everyone in people's temple was told, if you can divest yourself as much of your property as you can, judge everyone not by what they own, but by who they are. And so for people who'd never been treated with respect before, of course they would want to be part of any group where not only are they brought in, they are valued. And Jones had this knack to be able to be whatever someone wanted him to be. In some ways, he was one of the great performers of our time. Uh, the word that struck me as I read this book was chameleonic. And, and you were talking about his the way he would influence people. This was something he honed early as a young, as a kid of, of 12. He would use his apparent age to dominate to dominate, literally dominate kids younger than he was to get them to do his bidding. And they were, you know, attracted to, well, this young, this older guy thinks I'm worth something. And that's carried on all the way through to the very end. Jones was determined to be the leader. Mm. We're not talking egalitarianism, though he might claim (laughs) that's what it was. But we have to look back at his childhood, how he's always determined to be the one in charge. Mm. Old men in Lynn today, Lynn, Indiana, remember the summer where for the first time in that community of little farm towns, every town had a baseball team of teenage boys with a schedule drawn up to follow, merchants in every town coming together to pay for the uniforms the boys would wear, down to box scores of every game. Jim Jones, 14 years old, is organizing this whole thing all by himself. And the important thing is no trouble is too great so long as the situation is set up for Jim Jones to be the leader. It's how can we be surprised what happens later when he learns how and he can just almost effortlessly seem to dominate any group he's in. He eventually, he graduates from high school and goes kind of in and out of college. And I think this experience in college is really important because this establishes him as a man who strives but is easily distracted. And he wants to be one thing. He wants to be another. What he really wants is instant success and instant power. And the way to get that, of course, is by trying to find a profession, a vocation, where from the beginning you can be the one in charge. Uh, After Jim graduates from high school, living in Richmond, Indiana, sort of the big town in the southeast corner of the state, and by the way, he graduates from high school a semester early. The Lynn schools were so great and he was so advanced that when he moves for his senior year into the big town, He's already ahead of all the classes there. He graduates, goes to work as an orderly in the local hospital, and soon begins saying, if he's not a minister, maybe he'll be a doctor, the power of life and death. Then a different dream. Maybe he would be the hospital administrator, the one the doctors have to answer to. In his life, no rung would be too high for Jim Jones to think that he would be perfect on it. He ultimately decides to be a minister, and he marries a young nurse named Marceline Baldwin. And again, Jim Jones is not only creative, 
but he is smart enough to understand when someone else knows something he doesn't that he needs to know. As a minister in Indianapolis, as a young guy just starting out, he has to know how to approach the power structure so they will want to work with him. He's never worked with city councilmen, with mayors, community leaders, whose time is precious, lots of people want attention. Marceline's father was on the city council. She understood these things. She taught him how to do that. Without her in the early days, I don't think he ever would have risen to the heights he did. He wanted to join up with a, a regular church, but he couldn't get there. <laughs> it wasn't that didn't like as many things. It turned out to not be so easy. No, uh, Jones was hoping to affiliate with a major denomination, not because he agreed with any one of them in particular but because if you're affiliated with the Quakers, with the Methodists, with the Presbyterians, that gave you a certain glow of authority, that you weren't just some nut out there. And also there were tremendous tax breaks for being associated (laughs) with the church. And Jim Jones, though people didn't realize it, in some ways was a practical man. He ultimately, after being turned down by the Quakers, among others, trying to affiliate his church, was accepted by the Disciples of Christ. He wanted them, because they had no laws written into their church constitution, to control individual churches. They wanted him because they were trying to encourage their other churches to do more community outreach. The social programs of People's Temple fit perfectly. So Jones affiliates People's Temple with Disciples of Christ, but that's in name only. Jones had an interesting problem as a preacher because he um, would sometimes he'd start to referring to he didn't really like the Bible and he'd start <laughs> he started referring to God as in less than pious tones as the sky God, and then he'd also uh, start to go straight down the line of communism. And this is an interesting uh, side fact that uh, who knew that Indiana in the late 40s, early 50s was a hotbed of communists? Not necessarily a hotbed. In fact, uh, it's no accident that when the John Birch Society was established, it was the announcement was made in Indianapolis. But Jones, like any effective demagogue, knows how to appeal to smaller segments of the population and try to convince them that they have the wherewithal to grow in influence. So you've got sort of the big white conservative power structure, first in Indiana, then later in California. But Jones knows how to reach out. He doesn't preach communism. He's very careful. It's a dirty Mm. word in 50s America. But He privately, to his followers, not in public church meetings, talks socialism. Mm. Everyone has an equal chance to excel. That's the difference, he would say. Communism is when governments tell you what you have to do. Socialism is where everybody has an equal chance to do what they want. And he takes these groups and uses current events exaggerates them so the dangers seem more real than even they are. He's telling his black followers that there will be concentration camps for blacks 
started by the American government anytime. And we say, oh, that's ridiculous. Remember, these are folks who in their lifetimes have seen the burning crosses on lawns, the lynchings. They remember the camps for Japanese Americans during World War II were against their will. They're simply put there. They might be dangerous. It seems possible. So Jones scares them. He starts to turn the world, as all demagogues do, into there's us, and anyone who disagrees with us is the enemy. You've got to do that to keep them loyal, and Jones was a master. In 1961, uh, Jones was was on the, the Human Rights Commission. <laughs> Human Rights Commission. I mean, if you were to have told me that, I would say <laughs> this is a fantasy. It's That's what makes this book so fabulous. How... Talk about just digging into this past because it's all over the map. I didn't know what I was getting into (laughs) when I started the book, but it got more and more fascinating. Again, Jim Jones is not easy to categorize. He was never entirely one thing or another. What we remember of him is the final extreme. But when you ask the people who stayed with him, 15 years, 20, 30, as, you know, following him, and say, how could you do that? This is how they would explain it. First of all, he kept doing good things. And when the quirks would appear, the megalomania, even the early drug usage and taking sexual advantage of some of his followers, you would think these do not weigh, do not outweigh the good things that are happening. And they also describe it one after another as a frog in a pot of water. Mm. If you take a frog and dump it in a pot of boiling water, it will instantly try to leap out. But if the frog is in a lukewarm pot of water and the heat's turned up just little by little, the frog will virtually allow itself to be boiled to death. Jim Jones and his bizarreness increases incrementally over a span of decades. What we see at the end was not in any way the man who drew this strong following together in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in the early 1970s. It's interesting that he you really do do a, a, a wonderful job of creating, I think his... It, the book is called the, the Road to Jonestown. There's a reason for that. This is about the journey more than the jet destination. And you do a wonderful job of showing how Jones's good intentions are essentially, essentially, I guess, sabotage themselves because upon being unable to achieve them, he would start to take methods that were less savory. And then the, the unsavory methods began to require more and more buttressing. All demagogues, and Jones was one, ultimately have to lead their followers forward based on outrageous claims and promises. Every demagogue will say at some point, I am the only one who can solve these problems. That's why you have to follow me. And demagogues have to promise that I will change this. It won't even be that hard. You're going to be amazed by how wonderful things are going to be. One of the things Jones would always say is, we are going to do these things, and it will be great. It will be wonderful. But as you get more followers, the claims must become more grandiose, 
Sure. Yeah, you and, can't. You can't. Can't right. go back. You have to ramp up. You're practically promising miracles, and to distract your followers, where the miracles don't happen instantly, which they're anticipating, is you have to blame it on other people. They're sabotaging me. I hadn't realized that these enemies of ours were going to do these terrible, destructive things, turning their skepticism not on himself, but on them. Gradually, Jones, whose paranoia is very real, demagogues convince themselves they're telling the truth, even if it's an obvious lie. He believes the American government, the CIA, the FBI are all going to conspire against him. They're afraid of him. They're going to try to bring about his destruction. So this is what he tells his followers. And again, the next step for a demagogue, get out opposing voices. Do not allow them to be heard. And Jones, certainly there are excesses. There are dark sides. And investigative reports in the Bay Area start to be printed. Things about physical punishment of members who, for some reason, gain Jones's disapproval of money not being spent on social programs but put in foreign banks. Most of all, of members of People's Temple who want to leave not being allowed to do so. When the first stories appear, Jones can say, it's being made up. They're lies. What they're telling you are not facts. If you'll listen to me, I am the only one who's telling you the true facts. Okay, you're scaring me. (laughs) It's all a matter of record. Demagogues do not change. Mm. What Jim Jones did was done decades before it's still happening. But here's Jones telling his followers, you can't believe what you hear. The media is the enemy now. Don't believe them. But the reporters, the stories get better, more pointed. They're they're nailing every fact. They're naming names. Jones has written written to great political power. He was he was in. uh, He got to hang out with uh, the Carters. This is (laughs) not only not only is he hanging out, but this is what scared the hell out of me when I started finding it. The stories really start breaking around 1977. And in 1977, just before the stories appear, in news articles, interviews with Jim Jones, you start to see these illusions. Pastor Jones says at the moment he does not plan to seek public office. He is still concentrating on his church and its missions, does not rule it out for the future. Jim Jones, a great egomaniac, is measuring himself against congressmen, mayors, governors, even newly elected presidents. He is preparing himself, I believe, to run for public office, where he will take his demagoguery and his mastery of the media, because when he can get on camera, when he can talk, he will insist, he will bombast, he will overwhelm anybody else and reach a certain audience that is alienated, wants to hear these things said. So Jim Jones could, if the San Francisco media, the California media, and God bless him for it, hadn't come up with all these stories that began to make all his powerful patrons begin to back away. And so Jones is determined 
to get out. He wants now to bring his followers to some place where they are so isolated, the only voice they can hear is his own. And as it happens, People's Temple has started a small farm community in South America in the jungles of Guyana. That is such a, a great aspect of this book. I want to ratchet back to that bit that you read at the beginning because one of the things that struck me as I read that, I said, this is the first time I think ever we've seen this scene through the eyes of the country where it happened. And that provided such an unusual window on it that makes it, I think, more I think more alien and more real to our time. Well, we never think beyond the day of tragedy itself. Mm -hmm. Why Jim Jones and People's Temple would want to be in Guyana, why the Guyanese would want them there, but this all plays into the ultimate strategy. What Jones had always sought, copying black ministers everywhere, he would tell his people, there's a promised land and someday I'm going to lead you to it. Here's one of the miracles that he can try to at least pretend he's delivering. Guyana's just separated itself from the British Empire. In South America, it's still close enough to the states that you can get back and forth fairly easily. Important for Jones. He wants to keep his presence in America. The, the population is largely people of color, which he likes, but the national language is English. It's the only country in South America that has English as its natural, native language. And besides that, Guyana desperately needs People's Temple, and here's why. The country itself is a little narrow band of beach and then tens of thousands of square miles of the thickest, densest jungle imaginable. I have been in there personally, flown over it, and even had to try to cut my way through it. You cannot imagine anybody living there, and it was only populated by Amerindians and some small mine camps. In the northwest district of Guyana, that's where it's the wildest and worst. And at the same time, Venezuela, the next-door neighbor, in the 1970s, the Guyanese army, barely armed, it, there, there's hardly any soldiers. They can't possibly fight. Venezuela, military stronghold, and they start claiming that this northwest district of Guyana really belongs to them. They're making noises about invading and taking it over. The Guyanese army can't stop them. And then come these Americans. This man, Jones, has pictures of himself with First Lady Rosalind Carter, a letter to Jones from Vice President Walter Mondale saying how wonderful it was to meet him. And Jones says he wants to settle hundreds of Americans right in this disputed area so that the Venezuelans, if they want to come in and take over, will be messing with Americans. And Venezuela does not want to face the American army and so the Guyanese welcome People's Temple with open arms and when the rumors start that things in the jungle are getting strange, guns are being brought in, there's rumors in America that people are being held against their will, Guyanese government doesn't want to hear it. As long as the Americans are there, they're safe from Venezuela, that's all they care about. Talk about finding the, the people at after all these years, and how they felt about 
what had happened then and how how it's how it's played out through the years. When the first settlers from People's Temple got to Jonestown, they were uniformly shocked. Jones had been describing it to them back in America as a paradise, <laughs> uh, almost Hawaii-like, with lagoons and fresh fruit dangling from every tree. Didn't mention the venomous snakes dangling from every tree and the fact that the trees were triple canopy jammed together. And when the first pioneers get there and try to cut their way through the jungle, they bring chainsaws, set the blades against the trees, and the blades shatter. The wood is harder than the metal. <laughs> the, it's not a paradise. It is incredibly difficult, and yet many of them love it. This is how we finally prove that socialism is the way to go. We will build a farm where no one ever has. We will grow all these crops. We will take these crops to the starving people of the world and feed them. And there are also some people who show up, take one look, and think, hell no. But they can't get away because as they come, Jones takes all the money they have. He takes their passports. They are in the middle of the jungle. They are 150 miles from civilization. There's no roads directly in or out. And he tells them, fine, if you want to leave, swim. We're not giving you a cent. So once they're there, they have two choices. They can either adapt and work towards these still noble goals, or they can fret because they're not getting away. It's not going to get better. And so most of them stay, and they become enthusiastic again. You know, it's funny how his two qualities, pragmatic and visionary, they work out in one way back in Indiana, integrating schools and doing all these good things. The same qualities some 25 years later have been twisted and now are performing a really different task. His pragmatism, particularly with money, I thought was really interesting. I, this is something I did not realize. That's, again, the thing about Jim Jones. In some areas, he has great common sense. In others, and I know I use the word demagogue a lot, but they have characteristics in common. His promises soar because so his imagination is doing the same thing. Even coming to Guyana after his humiliation back in California, Jones has dreams of greatness. If in this jungle he can build this huge self-sustaining community and continue to get a lot of coverage for the things he's doing there, he can yet now build himself into a figure of international importance. He doesn't dream small. And you've got to remember, this is a man who at various times in his sermons will describe himself as either the spirit of Jesus returned or some days the reincarnation of Lenin, other days the reincarnation of Buddha, and on a few special occasions towards the end of his ministry in America, a being from another planet whose spirit has come here to teach everyone else how to be. Who would believe that kind of thing, we ask ourselves now. But think, if you are someone who has gotten no respect from the rest of the world, you've been poor, you've been taken in, here is a man who values you, your children are getting an education, your voice is being treated as important, 
Okay, so he's saying some stuff that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to you, so what? Even as it at his worst, even at his worst depredations, uh, and I think this is one of the real tricks of the demagogue, as you point out, even when demagogues are making things absolutely terrible for those beneath them, they their trick is to convince those people whose lives are they are currently making terrible that what they're doing is actually going to make their lives better. Right. <laughs> the, the, the whole idea is it's us against them. Okay, maybe maybe there are some things that aren't quite working out yet the way you want, but who are you going to believe? Those people who have always lied to you all these years, the media who make up facts, the politicians who are deliberately trying to keep you down, the reason they hate me is because I am with you. And th in this way, demagogues turn attacks on themselves into attacks on the people who follow them. So that no matter how outrageous the demagogue may become, the people who are following feel they have no choice. We're going to have to support him. And the fact that all these other outsiders are attacking him is proof that he's telling the truth. It, it's a, a complete, uh, it's a counterintuitive, <laughs> a triumph of counterintuitiveness. And, you know, again, as much as we talk about Jim Jones and People's Temple, it's not a unique story. That's the reason that we should learn from Jim Jones and People's Temple, because demagoguery in America did not end on November 18, 1978. There are lessons we can learn that still would be very useful, in fact, might be desperately needed in the modern day. I think that one of the things that interested me as I read this book was the mental state of the demagogue, which you do a fantastic job of examining. After this, Jim Jones' mind, it's like this giant city with all these towers. There's the tower of kind of good things he wants to do, and then there's the tower of like as he becomes more inverted. And the question I have for you is, you talked about his drug use. Do you think that his escalating sense of paranoia was a result of mental illness, drug use, a combination of the two? I don't think Jim Jones was ever mentally ill, but he certainly was paranoid. If you took all the paranoids in the world and said they were mentally ill, you'd have a, a pretty large group. <laughs> drug, heavy drug usage, particularly mm -hmm. amphetamines, we know chemically can, can contribute to paranoia, increased paranoia, irritability, Jones wore dark glasses. He told his followers it's because he had so much inner power looking directly <laughs> in his eyes might burn them up. But he wore the dark glasses because the whites of his eyes were bright red from drug use. He didn't want people to see it. Now, think about this. Jones has counselors, lieutenants, who try to take his more outrageous statements and translate them again. What he really means to say is this. They would tell people, don't look at the individual words, Jim says. Instead, you have to realize the overall theme. He's talking from his heart, and you can't just judge word by word. And as long as he let them speak for him, he might even seem reasonably rational. But beyond their control, 
Jim Jones would suddenly pop out and get in the telephone or get on TV, and he would say sublimely asinine things, very offensive things. And it's just coming directly from him without filter. And again, outsiders would say, how can these people buy into this? Surely it's obvious. But again, what they're not seeing is that all the followers have been taught that any criticism of Jim Jones is actually an attack on them. So the more he just comes out unfiltered and says these wild things, everyone else in the world is saying this makes no sense, the more the followers believe he's right. They're closing in on us until in Guyana, his paranoia grows, he creates paranoia in them, and they do come to believe, almost all of them, that at any time, at any minute, the United States government, the CIA, the FBI, mercenaries, who knows? But at some point, they're coming for us. They're going to try to kill us. And there's no outside voice anymore for them to hear. I think that uh, one of the the great lessons of this book and the things that's really fascinating to read, to read is the way that Jones would manipulate the reality of those around him with his language and also by um, his combination of religion and his uh, talent for for bureaucracy. And Marceline, his wife, was one of his key assets here. She really helped keep him uh, have a pretty clean paper trail, would help him get his administration stuff, his administrivia, as it were. Uh, Marceline Jones had a terrible life because of the things she was subjected to by her husband. But again, she's a perfect example. She felt the mission of People's Temple was what was most important. And no matter what indignities he would visit on her, she thought it was her job to try to keep up the morale of, of the rest of the people involved to try her best to make the good things operate as they should. Jones is incrementally losing control of everything else, the day-to-day administration. He has Marceline. He also has a couple other women, Carolyn Layton in particular, who understand him well enough to get what they think he wants done and then be able to interpret and have other people do it. But, again, back to the theme. A demagogue is only going to cede so much control. And at some point, for their own self-image, they need proof that people will follow them anywhere. Now, Jones was convinced that with most of his followers, he could literally shoot somebody in the middle of the street And they would forgive him for it because he was Jim Jones. But he needed to know more. Okay, would you, in fact, willingly give your lives if I said it was necessary? And so in February 1978, he calls a white knight. In Jonestown, these were those moments when, after everyone's exhausted from working all day, Jim Jones, over the loudspeaker in the camp, calls everyone together and talks about the latest emergency, that the United States Army is about to attack. 
We have to prepare to defend ourselves. This time, he says that the Guyanese government has fallen. Their socialist friends are gone. In their place are these hardline conservatives who are going to bring in the United States government to wipe out people's temple. We can't let that happen. He's preached about Masada, reminding them of the Jewish rebels facing the Roman army. And just as the Roman army is about to break into their fortress, these brave revolutionaries all commit suicide, men, women, and children, as a revolutionary act. Now he tells the people of Jonestown, we're going to do that. And he brings out vats of liquid. Flavor-Aid, they never used Kool-Aid in Jonestown. That was too expensive. And he tells them it's laced with poison. And they must line up and they must drink the poison. And that when they do, they will die within 45 minutes. But this will prove when the enemy comes in that we despise you and we disdain you and we will die before we will let you humiliate us. We will not be your captives. Not everybody wants to do it, but most of them go up, they drink. It's only after they do that Jones tells them, there is no poison. It was only a test. You've proven your loyal to me. And after that, he gives them a day off from work. And they think, well, okay, so if he says something like this, that's just Jim being Jim. He likes to test us. We need to be tested. We've passed the test, and on we go. And the time will come, eight and a half months later, when they think, once again, it's only Jim testing us. Tell me about Tim Carter. Jones, in February, has this practice run, though the people don't realize it is. It's only after that that he orders the cyanide to be shipped over from America, cyanide powder. From this moment, it's only a matter of time. $8.85. That's right. And so Jones has now the poison at hand. In November 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan from the Bay Area comes to Guyana, bringing with him some members of the media and some members of a group called Concerned Relatives. Ryan's constituents have complained to him. They have family members in Jonestown. The letters they're getting seem censored. They believe their relatives are being held as virtual slaves. Ryan's plan is based on Jim Jones not letting him into Jonestown. He expects to show up, knock on the wall, When he's told he can't enter, he will come back to America and tells Jim Wright, then majority leader of the Democratic Party, soon to become Speaker of the House and someone I interviewed for this book before his death, that Jones's refusal will allow Ryan to request a formal government investigation into Jim Jones and Jonestown. This is going to be what would ultimately bring Jones down. The government actually would be coming for him. Instead, Jones is persuaded to let Ryan and the media in, and they come in on Friday, November 17th, and Ryan speaks to whoever he wants to speak to. Remember, you've got over 900 people here. Only 15 people tell Leo Ryan they want to go. Ryan doesn't realize 11 more sneaked out earlier in the day, but even so, 26 people out of more than 900. He tells people in Jonestown, and I have talked to a couple of the survivors who were there, 
that as far as he's concerned, Jim Jones has proved his point. People are here because they want to be. He's going to take these 15 folks. He's going to fly them out. And when he gets back to the States, he's going to say, Jim Jones, let people go who wanted to go, and there were only a few of them. He, he, Leo Ryan even gives a speech at a dinner the night before in Jonestown saying, I can tell so many of you believe this is where you want to be. This is what you want to do with your life, your lives. And he gets a standing ovation. So he's going to leave with these people. But to Jim Jones, it's different. Jones believes one congressman comes in, he takes these people. That's just going to make it easier the next time for someone to come. He's going to have his people taken away from him, and he can't stand that possibility. So Ryan, the defectors, as they were called, the media, the concerned, the concerned relatives, leave in a truck for the little airstrip six miles away to be flown back to Georgetown, the capital. Jones sends after them a truck with a tractor, rather, a tractor with armed men. At the airstrip, the armed men attack. Their victims are unarmed. Leo Ryan, four others die, others grievously wounded. While this is happening, Jim Jones calls everybody together in the pavilion in Jonestown. He tells them the congressman's been killed, that it wasn't Jones's idea, when of course it was, but this is it. Now there's no question. Any time now, the enemy is going to come parachuting in, and it will be a mercy to our children and our old people in particular if we let them simply step over to the other side. This is not suicide. It's a revolutionary act. And a lot of the people hearing this believe, oh, well, here goes Jim again. It's just another test. And when they bring out the vats, they think it's, it's still an act. And then Jones says he thinks the children should go first, their parents with them if they want. And they have babies in arms and hip, hypodermic needles to drop the poison in their mouths. And this is where it all starts to go wrong. Death by cyanide is one of the most painful and terrible ways you can die. The poison prevents your body from being able to take in oxygen. And so you convulse and you froth at the mouth. And the babies are doing this. And people see it. And some of them are still willing to die because they believe in Jim Jones and anything he has to say. There's some of them who are just so exhausted, so worn out, and who really believe that the enemy's about to come kill them, and their attitude is fine, give me the damn poison. But there are also people, at least three or four dozen, perhaps as many as a hundred, who don't want to take it and refuse. And there are armed guards, they're held down and forcibly injected. We know this because of the autopsy reports, which I have seen from the Guyanese doctors early on the scene. They found these people, each with an abscess, in his or her body, from where the needle had gone in. It wasn't mass suicide of mindless sheep. It was mass murder, orchestrated by a demagogue named Jim Jones. Afterwards, in all the horror, one thing remains in everyone's memory. Not that good and decent people died that day, people who had committed their lives to trying to make everyone else's lives more equitable. 
The saying was, don't drink the Kool-Aid, a joke line. One that now has come to mean, if there's some obvious idiot trying to give you orders, don't be a fool and listen. When it was nothing like that and it wasn't even Kool-Aid. The survivors, the people whose loved ones died that day, every time they hear someone say, oh, don't drink the Kool-Aid, it hurts them. And it's a disservice to the wonderful people who died not voluntarily, but really as martyrs to, to someone who had no right to ask that of them. And even more, the lesson of Jonestown, the reason we've got to care, the reason we have to look back. The signals were there of a demagogue, the steps that were taken incrementally, one by one, until you reach a point where facts are said no longer to matter. It still happens. We've got to learn at some point to recognize the signs and not follow along. What happened in Jonestown is worth being discussed, being studied today. And if there's anything people get from my book, I hope it's that. How can we ever change the pattern of false leaders trying to make us believe things that make no sense? It's got to stop sometime. It needs to stop now. The new book by Jeff Gwynn is The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and People's Temple. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.